0: Hello and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks welcome back to bark's remarks i'm mark severino a grown man who loves duck comics who does love the character of magicka dispel and uh and and loves greek mythology so this this should be a really interesting episode today um listeners we're going to be talking about carl bark's oddball odyssey which is a, a pretty notable story for a few reasons but before we get into talking about the um, the story in question, I want to welcome on a couple of guests. One of whom is returning, and one of whom is a first timer. And uh, it is a double bill today. I've got two Wormsteds. I've got father and son. So welcome back to Tom, and welcome aboard to Bill, Tom's father. Um, gentlemen, how are you doing? You, you first, Tom.
1: Still recovering from the holidays, but pretty well. I'm looking forward to having a lively discussion.
0: Yeah. This should be a fun one. I'm, I'm really excited. You wanted to bring your dad on. And I think that uh, I, I think this is going to be a really neat thing to do because it's such a it can it can be a big family experience. So, Bill, welcome to you. Thank you. So so l- let me ask you guys, is this are these comics, the comics of Karl Barks? Are these something that you guys kind of enjoyed together growing
2: up? Is this like one of those father son bonding things? Uh, there was a bit of that to it. But well, when I was little, I got st- started reading Donald Duck. Can't see my book.
0: Yeah, yeah, your background.
2: It's Donald Duck's Toy Train. My mom got me for this when I was five years old, and I drove her nuts having her read to me to the point where she taught me to read with this book. You get into the later 50s, I was buying lots of comics, including Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge. Anyway, when after I had my own kids and they got to a certain point, I figured Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck is a great way to get them interested in reading. So I started buying, I would go to the store, there was a new Duck book, I'd buy one for me and one for Tom. And he got into Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge fairly quick. That sound about right, Tom? Uh, Yeah. Don't roll your eyes at us.
1: (laughs) Pretty much instantaneously. I mean, I think right around the time Gladstone started publishing, in like 1985 is when I started reading them.
2: Tom would have been six at that
1: point, something like that. And I
2: would have, I would have bought copies of the stuff right off the stands for him. And unless I miss, I might guess he still has those copies, right, Tom?
1: Ah, uh, yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got, uh, I've got the vast majority of
0: mine myself. I think, I think Tom and I are pretty close to contemporaries. Um, we're we're pretty close to contemporaries here i was reading these at age like 6 or 7 or so buying the newest gladstone ones um this one i i missed for a little while i actually picked it up i ordered back issues uh some back issues that sounded interesting to me from that you know that page of ads where they uh they offered up some of their old ones so this one came in the mail um i remember uh so you know do you do you have like fond memories were these kind of like bedtime stories or something that he would you know give you to read
1: i just liked a good story and they were just really entertaining uh if i was bored which is you know i'd read it was just an entertaining story really and i like this story in particular i remember i read it an awful lot cover got loose that's how much i read it <laughs> we,
2: yeah. our, our household had a lot of a lot of books a lot of comics there was a lots lots of things to read. I remember at one point he wanted to read some of my EC comics, horror comics, but he was only eight, so I was kind of like, "Well, not yet. Wait a wait a few years." But but no, oh, he started yeah. off good on on the on the Donald and Uncle Scrooge. And here it is, all these years later, and we both still love love them. It's
1: great to be honest. I probably read them while you were at work, so. <laughs> You thought we knew that already. So
2: yeah, I kind of guess.
0: Yeah, kids have a way of uh, finding those things. I, I remember I was fascinated by my own dad's like Doonesbury and Bloom County comics, even though I only understood like one out of every four of them. I, I still got a kick out of it. Yeah, you know, I this is something that I've really enjoyed sharing with my own kids. I've got three kids of varying ages and uh, they've been bedtime stories for all of them. At some point, I'm just getting into reading the um, my four year old currently four year old Francie. She does love herself some Magic of Dispel. I read a couple of the the books from the big the Gladstone the Gladstone album, the many faces of Magic of Dispel, and uh, she's definitely got a
1: favorite character.
0: How about you guys? Is that part of why you you like this one? You know, Tom, you'd requested this story. Are you a big Magic fan?
1: Oh yeah, she was always my favorite villain. Um, In fact the issue we're going to talk about uncle scrooge 40 that was kind of like my holy grail issue to get for a long time because it was was kind of rare and i finally found one i like a comic convention with uh yeah it's kind of a long story but
2: (laughs) when when tom was 12 i started putting on comic convention wow so for 13 years after that he was going to my comic conventions two or three times a year and he'd make some money at the con and if he was anything like me everything he made at a con he spent yeah he could have found this uncle scrooge at one of my shows I, i don't know
1: actually i remember it was a show that um It was a different show and Don Rosa was there as a guest.
2: And we had Don Rosa twice.
1: It was uh, it was actually um, me and you went to uh, I think it was like early 1994. We went to like a different show because he was there as a guest. Mm,
2: don't remember that.
1: Well, anyway,
0: I so so you're burying the lead there a little <laughs> bit. I I was assuming that you're just you know quote just a big um, Duck Comics fan, right? But you you Bill, you've put on uh, comic conventions before. For 13 right? years,
2: I I put on. Com- the biggest comic convention we had in seattle at the time um they've got much bigger ones now um but yeah for 13 years i did comic conventions partly so i could buy things myself i was looking for barks i was looking for superman batman spider-man i was looking for a lot of stuff
0: (laughs) nice that's great what what was the name of the con center
2: con we had it at the seattle center and we named it after that
0: that's great well that's that's very cool what a a neat fact and you guys you guys got to have don rosa there any other um disney comics luminaries
2: uh john lustig was there a couple of times john Luz- i think
0: john late. lustig is is local to you guys isn't
2: he yes 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 he was that's great um,
1: william van horn it, was oh, one
2: william van horn we had him at least once if not twice nice. um did you have anybody else duck related tom
1: mm. well we had michael gilbert um at the time I didn't like I knew that he did Disney comics, but at the time I was reading his I didn't know that that's who he was. Michael Gilbert also did Mr. Monster.
2: Yeah, and he collaborated
0: with Van Horn a few times, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Lustig did some collaborating with Van Horn. I remember.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Lustig is is great friend of the podcast. He's he's been on a couple of episodes. Really, really nice guy. Um yeah.
2: And
0: and Van Horn, of course, is a legend, but pretty pretty reclusive. So that's very cool that you guys got to have him at the yeah. Conference.
2: Well, you know, we're talking now back in the late eighties, early nineties when we had him. Um, right. I did shows from 83 to 96. Nice. Yeah. Um, my,
0: my understanding is that he didn't really go to cons unless they were local. Um, I, th- I think I heard that somewhere that he generally as, didn't as travel. I
2: recall, for them. Van Horn lived up in either Vancouver or Victoria, Canada. And right. in that sense, Seattle isn't that far. And also, right. at the time I recall, he was working with John Lustig and it was probably the two of them worked out something. Yeah,
0: yeah, so. that's that's great. Well, that's very cool. So you've got some great industry experience there, both of you. Um, that that must have been a real real thrill. So let's see. You mentioned you mentioned Tom that this one is a little bit rare. There's something else kind of notable about this issue. Um, do you know what I'm getting at? Do you want to mention it? Yeah.
1: Well, I I think it was the first gold key issue. Uh, I think Western, who was the imprint of Dell, went to Gold Key, um, and this was the first Gold Key issue. And then the other thing is they had a, this new border panel style that was really bizarre that only lasted for like a month or two.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and 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 it was the first thing that I was thinking of. But you're right. There's a couple of notable things, the weird borders and the squarish word balloons. Um, pretty, yeah. pretty distracting, aren't they?
2: I felt so. One other difference I noticed is I'm looking at number 40 right now, and it's saying published bimonthly monthly by KK Publications. Issue 39 said published by Dell Comics. Yeah. It's the oh, same company in a different mode, is my understanding. Okay. So my, my understanding, it's that's pretty close. Dell,
0: Western Publishing had a relationship with this publisher, Dell. And they, they ended it. They severed it at this point. And Gold Key is the imprint that they created for themselves. So Dell is essentially leaving the picture at this point. And um, this really does feel like a new era of the comics, right? To me, I see that Gold Key logo, and I, I know that we're dealing, we're, we've gotten a little bit into the 60s. The comics, they feel, they don't, they don't feel quite as classic to me, right? I'm sure that's psychological logical, but but they're just less vintage at this point.
2: Um but, but I agree with everything you just said. Oh uh, yeah. I, think Oddball, the gold I didn't notice it in terms of Dell versus Gold Key. But yeah, this at this point it's not quite as classic as it used to be. Yeah. Um, when I'm squinting at the screen, I'm going to another screen and looking at Oddball Odyssey. Yeah, <laughs> looking for no the Right. I th- I think
0: I think Dell had a little bit more experience. Um, you know, the, their comics were pretty disposable at that time no matter who the publisher was um but i but i think gold key western publishing themselves were they definitely took some time to find their footing and um they they'd keep going for a couple of decades before basically fading into obscurity you know they they changed into whitman comics which was a pretty dark era. They actually published simultaneously. It's it's weird. I guess for a while if you were, um, they would publish some of these as gold key and those were quote. you probably know more about this than I do, being someone who ran a comic convention, but classic comics that were destined for the newsstand that could be returned you know, unsold issues those were given the gold key imprint and um, the non-returnable ones were given the whitman imprint and then eventually they just kind of changed to the whitman line and they de-emphasized the newsstand comics completely and and those like early 80s whitman ones were, were pretty pretty bad pretty junky oh, yeah. well, the, the thing
1: i
2: remember about the whitman's is they were coming in bags of three yeah. and you look at i you know tom and i were looking at this at the time we'd go to the store Where's the gold keys? But there's these bags and we're looking at the bag going, okay, there's three comics in here. We can see the cover of one. What are the other two? Do I yeah. want to buy? Do I want to pay for three comics when I may not even want the other two? Remember that time?
1: Oh, yeah. That was uh, a really weird distribution. And now some of those are like really valuable. Rare, yeah. you mean? Yeah. Because they're yeah. I think, distributed in like, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah it, it was weird. people are very critical of that model for predictable reasons but um because it especially it happened to coincide essentially with the rise of comic book stores and they basically uh, modeled themselves out of being featured in in comic book stores as they were becoming more mainstream at that time so
2: and that's why we were all so happy when Hamilton started rainbow and yeah. started doing the oh my brain just lost the word. Well, Gladstone comics. Yeah. New, yeah. Gladstone. Old and new Disney. Yeah. Reprinting old stuff, and there was new stuff coming up.
0: Yeah, it was a wonderful era, and I'm I'm grateful that I happened to discover them without you know my dad bought me one because i saw it and and thought it looked really interesting but he wasn't like wanting to share it with so um so that's that's like a lot of prologue right let's uh talk a little bit more I think we mentioned here we're talking about uncle Scrooge number four is um where you can find oddball odyssey this was published in October and
2: it, it was actually Actually, October of '62 is what I had in my notes. Is that right? Well, I'm I'm looking at in in the Andisha, and it says January of '63. Right now, yeah. So. It may have said, "Well, let's see. I can get to the cover too. Let's see what that says." Uh, the cover also says January, so yeah. It, so if uh, it said January, it came out in October, right? Yeah,
0: that's how they that's how they worked with that that lead time. I generally go by the um, the information that's up on Index, the great you know clearinghouse. Um, I'll briefly mention that this one's been published in 20 countries overall, 107 different publications, and six times in the U.S., which is about average. these stories. And um, so gentlemen, I always, before we get into the action of the story itself, I like to do what I call pandering to the international listeners, since there are so many overseas listeners relative to American. So we're going to mention a couple of kind of appropriate ones. And I'm going to do the Greek, right? Because of um, what we're dealing with. And I'm going to make sure one of you does the Italian uh, and we'll throw in Spanish for good measure. So, so I'll go first. The Greek, title of this is Otis, Otisavros to Odyssea, um which is just the treasure of Odysseus instead of anything about Oddball Odyssey. So pretty straightforward. Um, how about, uh, Bill, do you want to go next? I think you're going to grace us with Italian. Yeah, di paparoni, paparoni, Novello, Lizzi Yeah. There
1: you go. That's uh, Scrooge, Mc, the letters.
0: Scrooge McDuck, New Ulysses right there. Um, and how about it, Tom?
1: Um, I'm going to really butcher this, but I'm just going to go for it. The one in uh, Finland. All right. Odyssikin Odyssey.
0: All right. And I haven't translated that one. So obviously it's got Odyssey. Let's uh, um, Google has got my back. So we've got it's just Odysseus's treasure. All right. So nothing too interesting. Sometimes they're a little more interesting than that, but at least we could cover some of the languages of the story. All right, gentlemen, let's do it. We're gonna um, we're gonna go through the action here, and uh, as I summarize each page, um, I invite you guys to give me your thoughts. <sighs> guys, it really is hard for me to get past the um, the weird borderless panels here, but I'm gonna do my best. At least we do get the return of something that I've missed lately, gentlemen. It's been several issues since I've seen a nice splash panel. It's not the most remarkable one, but we we have the ducks busily fishing. Donald and the nephews are fishing from a dock when Scrooge is approaching them in a little bit of a tizzy, talking about how he wants them to sail with him to find an ancient treasure in Italy. Um, and he goes on to say that it is the loot that Ulysses took with him from the ruins of Troy. Uh, and, you know, the ducks are more interested in their fishing and their they're taken aback when he talks about this imaginary treasure um so you guys what do you think this uh opening page to me it's notable that we're not we're not in the money bin a lot of the stories start out that way we don't have a narrator box this feels um this feels pretty different and it's a lot more spartan than i'm used to
2: well they they're as i recall their barks used the ducks fishing on piers quite a few times over the years i'm almost thinking things back into the 40s Mm -hmm. um so this is not an abnormal thing for them to be doing and uncle scrooge he found something that says about the loot of ulysses and perfectly in character for him um let's go find it but then donald reacts the way i would which is he's mostly an imaginary or a fictional character uncle scrooge so the treasure is probably imaginary, too. I mean, that's how I would have reacted.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts there, Tom?
1: Um, I just I like the way that he lays out the story and he just starts the action right away.
0: Yeah, this one this one does hit the ground running. Um, What is this? This is going to be our third story, I think, our, our third adventure to feature magic and dispel. Um, not that we've gotten to her yet, but I was just trying to kind of clock where we are. So, you know, the the ducks on the next page, the ducks are going to kind of give us a little bit of the background about the myth, you know, referencing um, Ulysses meeting uh, various mythological creatures. And, and it's becoming clear that Scrooge is in under some kind of enchant, right? His head is swimming. There's dollar signs around him. Um, not that that's out of character or anything, but um, he goes on to talk about how he has been corresponding with a young lady who is the descendant of Circe uh, and and that she has her ancestor hid that treasure in a cave near Italy Um, and so you know the ducks know something is up and when Donald asks to take a look at that letter he is going to fall under the enchantment here uh, pretty quickly as well and he's going to buy into it. Um, There's some sharp writing on this page
2: well we we have the 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 boys acting totally in character as being the um the fonts of reason they're you know they're still saying and hanging back from the whole thing and just going what's wrong with with scrooge and uncle donald and they also just saw donald change from thinking ulysses is is all phony baloney and donald says uncle scrooge acts as if he believes this stuff Then he gets a smell and then he's going, Oh, I believe it now. And the boys are just. Going, what's going on here? Something's funny happening.
0: And I should mention too that they specifically Donald calls out an odd-smelling and exotic perfume. Right, as uh, all of this stuff that kind of surrounds um, anything that's associated with magica is going to have a distinctly like feminine, you know, tone to it. So that's that's why it's going to be a perfume here. Um, you guys, does it feel like the the I don't I don't know which one you're looking at, but but. I'm I'm looking at the collection from Fantagraphics, and the big spaces in between the panels, it feels like I'm just missing art. You know, I don't think, I don't think he's like drawn less or anything. It's just the way that it's framed. It, it feels like it's more sparse to me. I,
1: again, I don't mean to like fixate on it. I mean, well, we're, go ahead, Tom. You bring up a good point. Um, For the longest time, I only, so I had two reprints, I had two printings of the story, I had the original Gold Key Issue, which had um, colored borders around the panels, which is, you know, I'm not sure if this is like a leftover thing from 3D or something. Uh or it's just because it's a sixties thing, but and then Gladstone when they first printed it, um, gave it regular border panels. Yeah. And um, that would
0: have been how I read it initially.
1: And I've always been curious because Bart's Bark's art seems a little more it seems like stifled somehow. Like I'm wondering if Western had him use a different material that he um the art just seems like it's the line work seems a little less expressive.
2: Uh I, almost, I have to agree with what Tom's saying. The artwork here seems a little simpler than what I'm used to in the duck books. Now, at this point in time, I wasn't reading each duck book as it came out. I pick up an issue here, an issue there. Um, certain books I can remember getting coverless, like The Prize of Pizarro and Island in the Sky. I picked them up coverless, but I thought the stories were just great. This seems to be a little bit looser. I was reading something on the Grand Comic Book Database last night, and it said Barks turned the art in. Without borders. So they must have asked him, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Maybe that would explain why his artwork is a little different.
0: Yeah. And I had, where was it? I had read in the guidebook that, um, you know, he briefly mentions, he said, there's been some, so there's been some changes in the drawing size and lettering style of all Whitman comics. It's got me and all the other artists mad and confused. Perhaps by the middle of the month, I'll have some shining examples of the new format to show you. Um, So, you know, you you can see that that was Barks in a correspondence uh, letter, a 1962 letter to Joseph Cowles.
1: Could you uh, tell us what website that is? I think our readers would love it.
0: Yeah, if you click, um, uh, I, I access that if there is any correspondence that links to it that's known. You can find a link in what's called the Karl Barks Guidebook, which is always linked through Indux. The, the website itself is series AM. Um, but you know, I think the easiest way is to go to the specific story page for, for each one and just find the external link to the Karl Barks guide.
2: I'm not so, sure the years, um, for, for a while, for quite a while, I collected original artwork. I did not have any Karl Barks artwork, but at a certain point, um, the art pages were quite large yeah. and then they cut them down. And, and I think it was sometime in the early 60s, maybe some of what Carl's alluding to was the the reduction in the size of the original art. Yeah, maybe. that's
0: possible. Um,
2: at any rate, I know there's
0: like a lot less detail in the backgrounds on this one, too. So so ba- back to the story here on page three, you know, both Donald and Scrooge are kind of under the enchantment. Um, and, and I do really like the character art in the panel where they're kind of dancing around with each other. Uh, Very excited at the prospect of going to Italy to buy this treasure. Um, and, you know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie have figured out that the letter is loaded with some sort of, quote, witch balm. Uh, and, and they think, they ask, you know, can't you guess who's behind this flim flammery? I really like this bit of writing here. I remember this, you know, vividly, even as a kid, when Scrooge um, encourages them to read the letter for themselves. Would, would uh, Bill, would you like to read what they say?
2: Well, first, the, the, the boys say, not for all the treasures in Troy. We wouldn't touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. There's an 11-foot pole, though. I I always really like
1: that. Yeah, I always loved how <clears throat> I always loved how Barks's dialogue seemed very like rhythmic to me. Like it just flows very well panel to panel, like in a rhythm. Yeah,
2: totally I totally agree. I remember reading a very long time ago that Barks always tried to put a uh, the panel at the end of a page, kind of a little pot to lead you into the next page. And here we've got Uncle Scrooge dancing along and the boys are saying, this proves us right that conniving fortune hunter is the sorceress, magic." Dispel Uncle Scrooge, Uncle Scrooge, as he dances off <laughs> into the next page. Yeah, it's a good panel to,
0: as you say, close that page out because we've got our mention of, of magic a dispel. This is a good choice, I think. This is an interesting choice where he lays out um, that the nephews already know what's going on, right? The the other the, the grown-ups are under some illusion here. This is one of those elements of the comics that I think is very satisfying for young readers who can kind of live vicariously through the nephews to feel like they're smarter than the grown-ups right
2: mm-hmm. um, well your point earlier about simpler backgrounds looking at this panel this page here there's only two panels that have backgrounds in them and even those those backgrounds are relatively simplistic most yeah. backgrounds are just uh you know uh um, last panel is light blue the the sixth panel is red and there's really no backgrounds in most of this.
1: Have you yeah. noticed that sorry, this isn't really something that so I guess I I don't know what fanographics um uh what they're doing as far as color production but I find the first three pages there's a lot of colors coming at you it's kind of jarring. But
2: Tom?
1: Like, oh, yeah.
2: Um give me a an example of color jarring, what page in that panel. Okay. And I'll look here to the original page two, yeah.
1: the fanographics volume from panel to panel, It's like the coloring in the background is kind of jarring,
2: and
0: I think they've tried to preserve the original coloring you know for the most part I think that was kind of the dictate that the new western publishing had that they were trying to make these issues now almost more like storybook like um but but you know if you're looking at this the original you can you can let us know if that's the case yeah
2: I in I'm looking at the original the background in panels one and four is kind of a lightish blue panel two is bright yellow yeah and panel three is kind of a light purple and th- does that sound right with what you're seeing, Tom?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I think Fanagraphics yeah. mixed some of the original coloring yeah. for the series. Right.
2: In general, sometimes they redo the coloring or they use a different kind of coloring and it's just not all the same. I don't have the fanographic volume, so I can't check. Yeah, it's
0: pretty much as you say. So I I agree with Tom. I find it kind of jarring. Um, I did forget to mention one key detail on that page. You know, when the nephews examine that note, they observe that uh, she has asked that he bring some token that will prove who he is. For example. The number one dime. Um, So, you know, we've got our setup here. We've got a couple of Enchanted Uncles, and uh, we've got a sea voyage now that we're heading off to. There's some funny dialogue here. They've both been kookied by that witch's wily perfume, and uh, we come to them days later in Italy. There's a funny bit as they're sailing where Scrooge is imagining the treasure pile to, to basically grow every time he takes a. With of that perfume Um, and the nephews are are hoping here that they will that they're going to have the chance to snatch the number one dime but unfortunately he keeps it tied to his neck with a chain Uh, this is kind of a transitional page there's not too much going on here any thoughts gentlemen
2: i do like the uh the uh the boy's expressions down in the seventh panel where their eyes are kind of they're 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 thinking very hard and, and uncle scrooge goes Balmier and balmier. They're, they're, th- you can tell that they're thinking about what are we going to do about this. Yeah. And then the last panel, if we could only snatch the old number one dime.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's some sharp character art as they've just, um, as they have just, you know, fired a slingshot at the the letter. All right, so gentlemen, this is where the story is going to kind of kick into gear, right? We we are transitioning to magic and dispel. Uh, you love to see her you know I should have asked you guys do you have like a favorite Magicka Dispel story
1: I've always seen a special I've always really really dug the many faces of Magicka Dispel just because the action is just really by action and the concept of is just amazing I don't want to give too much for future listeners of that episode but yeah it's a fun one
2: what about um, you, Bill?
1: Do you have a favorite?
2: Not specifically. Um, I've read too much for too many years. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, no worries.
2: Uh, I think about three or four years ago, I read all the way through the Karl Barks library, the hardback volumes. Mm-hmm. And I got them all in sequence then. But then I moved on to other things. And I mean, I like all the Magic of Dispelled stories, but I, I don't distinctly. There's one where she's on the, maybe maybe it's the many, I think it is the many phases of Magic of dispel where she's on the side of Mount Vesuvius, and she spraying her her uh her raven her crow and yeah. the face is changing is yeah. that it
0: yeah so that's
2: that's one yeah that's <laughs> a fun one i always like volcanoes and dinosaurs yeah. i'm nice. still a kid sure so so
0: enter magica dispel um I, I i love this panel how she enters right the story she is staring through a spyglass on her island outside this cave saying he's coming my billionaire mcduck my pigeon i love that she calls him her pigeon, you know, her mark. Um, and and she's pondering how, you know, her perfume must be doing its job and how she's got to get ready. She's got to be in character because she is, again, posing as the descendant of, of Circe herself. And and so the the ducks all dock and Scrooge hails up to hear, Ahoy up there, Signorina la Circe, I have come to buy your treasure. Um, and she is very theatrical. She has such a poetic style. of dialogue, too. It really begs to be read out loud. She says, It is for sale only to the great, generous, kindly Scrooge McDuck. Are you he? Very formal, right? Um, And he is bandying about his first dime on that chain which she spies through that glass and, uh, you know, references really quickly her plan to melt it into an amulet. The same plan that she had in her first appearance two adventures ago in the Midas touch um and so she is convinced that you are senior mcduck come in um what do you guys think magic is entrance here
2: well it's it's appropriate um <laughs> i <laughs> It's, it's kind of funny seeing that um, spyglass come out of the hole in the wall to look right at the the uh, old number one. But this is more proof that Scrooge has been enchanted. He would never consider giving somebody the old old number one. In fact, he hardly would even consider letting people see it or taking it right. out of the money bin.
1: Yeah, let alone bringing it halfway across the world, right? I think piggybacking on what you said, Dad, having a spyglass come out is a pretty ominous sign. Um um, and definitely is out of character form. I read
0: it as very cartoony. You know, it, they don't always look animated like uh, his 40s stuff, but this feels almost Looney Tunes-esque to me, with that spyglass poking out of the hole here. Um, so guys, the, the next page here, I, I think it had been a long time since I'd read this one. This is a panel that stuck out in my mind. This one was one of a couple that were kind of seared in my head. We have Magica dressed as Circe lounging on a little um I don't I don't know what this this little seating number is called, right? But it feels very classic, very like Greco-Roman. Um she she's got some laurels on her her raven is next to her. And there is no way to avoid saying it, she looks very like sensuous, very sexy, very like seductive right
2: in a a duck way
0: (laughs) in a a duck way this is one of those things that always feels ridiculous saying it but but Karl Marx is Absolutely, coding his character Magica dispel as like seductive as as very sexy. You know, he doesn't. It's it's far from the days of the Calgary Eye Opener, um, and he doesn't get to draw femme fatales anymore. But he he makes this exception for one in in duck form, <laughs> as weird as that is. Um, and and she gets right down to business, as she says. She just uh dumps a bunch of jewels out from an amphora, a, a vase. And, um, you know, asks him how much he bids and Scrooge is very eager and he immediately, you know, offers a million dollars, maybe two, but she's holding him back. Tom, do you want to tell us why she's holding him back, cautioning him?
1: Uh, The jewels are, according to the nephews, they're made in Hong Kong. (laughs) so oh, no. it's,
0: it's a pretty lazy flim flam but she's obviously counting on her like enchanted perfume um to to do
2: the job here i noticed especially in the first couple of panels there's actually some solid backgrounds here mm-hmm. especially the 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 part that's framing magica in the right part of the first panel yeah. um, and then the second panel there's backgrounds in every every panel here except for the bottom two um which as you pointed out earlier there's not much in the way Backgrounds in the earlier parts of the story. It's almost like he's trying to make this part of the story more real. Yeah. And, and he's yeah, that, putting more effort into
0: it. That might be the case. I know that at this point in his career, he's kind of transitioning away from doing the detailed backgrounds, you know, where, where he is in his career. And in fairness, I could probably draw cave backgrounds. Okay, and I'm no artist. Um, but uh, but it is still good Barks art. Um, and the character art is largely still up to par. So so on the next page, she's going to go on to say that she is not interested in his money, that in fact, she will <laughs> sell it for she'll sell it for a mere 10 cents. In fact, a specific dime, the one that is around his neck. Um, And it turns out that maybe maybe the nephews, you know, slingshotting the letter overboard has given him enough time to like, fade have some of the effects fade right because he is not agreeing to her price he's protesting I couldn't part with old number one it's very funny to me how she tries to sweeten the pot here Bill do you want to tell us about the the pot sweetening that Magica does
2: oh just more and more of the stuff that was made in Hong Kong um but this is also I think showing that Scrooge will only go so far even when he's enchanted I'll give you four million dollars for these jewels but you can't have old number one right he's too emotionally involved with that dive that after that dime that even when he's enchanted it's he won't let it go but you're you're also right in that it's been a while since he's been near that letter right and um again the boys are going up also made in hong kong and then finally scrooge says nothing can make me part with my old dime and yeah. then she actually says, Curses, McDust must be recovering from the effects of my perfume, which is very likely true. Yeah, I, I like that she just is like giving him whatever
0: lie she can think of, right? I'll toss in the personal jewels of the goddess Athena. So we're getting, you know, more and more out there, basically, as she goes along. Um. So, you know, on the next page, as she prepares to give him, quote, another whiff of the insidious stuff, the nephews are there, again, with their slingshot, and uh, they break the perfume bottle, they warn their uncles off, and in that moment, Magica, you know, unmasks herself, and in the same moment, she hits them with a foof bomb. You, you love to see it. This is part of the character of Magicka Dispel, right? Just foofing people into oblivion. I, I like it. It always cracks me up. Hey, it works for her. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's worth noting too that this is still kind of technology, right? Magica uh, up until a certain moment in this story, everything is going to be um, basically like sciencey looking, you know, w- witchcraft that, that, Could be explained by science. So, you know, she she foofs him into a daze and she tries to take the dime off. But the chain seems to be unbreakable that's around Scrooge's neck.
1: I just love that panel where the two panels where she's trying to pull the chain off his neck and he's in a daze. And then the transition from Take the Dime by Force into the second one where he's like partially, it looks like he's partially mad, like maybe coming out of the days, and she has this hand uh, on his face to kind of get some uh, exertion.
0: Yeah. That, that is a good, funny bit of character art.
2: And again, we have the final panel on the page. When you read it, you immediately want to turn to the page to find out, well, what kind of change is it? Yeah. He's got this great panel here that really moves the story along.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good It's a good rhythm. It's a good thing rhythmically to, to keep an eye out for. The next page is definitely going to end with an intriguing panel. But it starts with a very funny panel to me, or a set of panels where she's trying to cut it with pliers, and she's about to go phone the villain for a cutting torch. So that cracks me up, right? The the idea of her like wielding a cutting torch right next to Scrooge's neck. She is uh not demonstrating much concern for his well-being there. But um but the nephews are able to get like a rope and a hook in there and yank their nephew's away. And Magica is so frustrated, so upset that she could um she could kick holes in brick walls and she proceeds to do just that she's in this, you know, random cave here with a brick wall and she has kicked a hole into that and she is wondering what's behind there anyway. So it's kind of a little mini cliffhanger, right? Again, as you said, Bill, it's very compelling. You want to see what what is it that could surprise Magica here. So, you know, Bill, why don't you tell us about what what does she encounter when she goes into that long you know, unseen chamber there.
2: She um, gets into it and she says, a room with the smell of mysterious herbs. And there's writing which says, I, Circe, made this potion in the year of the storm. So what she actually finds in there is the spells of Circe to um, turn people into animals. And she says, Circe, so there was such a person. She lived here. This was her workshop. Now, what are the odds if the rest of the story was true that she just happens to find Cersei's spell. Outlandish. But in the point of the story, it worked. It's a way to kind of bring you almost to a second portion of the whole story.
0: Yeah, as you say, it's pretty coincidental. It's one of those comic book coincidences. Um, What do you think, Tom? Is this too coincidental? Does it work for you?
1: I mean, I think one of the things I always loved about Barks' stories is that you can read it one time and then read it years later and then maybe get something new out of it. Because... If the story were to have ended around here, it it would seem like oh it's it's a it, it's a cool story nothing special. But having this, it like it ramps it up a notch.
2: Um, one of my and Tom's favorite authors is Edgar Rice Burroughs, the man who created Tarzan. And Burroughs is known for coincidences. You know, people are running around Africa and they run into each other, even though you realize in the real world that's very unlikely. Coincidences are fine. I mean, in fiction. In a lot of stories, it's what moves the plot along.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's almost like Chekhov's gun, right? The idea if there's a gun introduced in Act One, um, it has to be fired by the end of the story. I mean, we've we've introduced the idea of Circe, and we've got a sorceress in this story. If she didn't essentially fall into that Circe role, it would be very like unsatisfying from a narrative perspective. She has to like take on the Circe role here.
2: I think I think you're correct. That makes perfect sense. So, she at the
0: end of this page, she's going to discover a strangely marked stick that, you know, she wonders if it could be Circe's wand. Um, To the reader, it's immediately obvious that it's a wand. It is a neat looking one, though. And and this is where the story for me really kicks into gear, you guys. This was my favorite part as a kid. um, And and what stands out are going to be these animal transformations. I, I think this is really cool. This is very animating to me. Uh, I I should mention, too, we have this important panel here uh, where one of the nephews, as they're waking their nephews from their, their uncles from their days, one of the nephews is saying that she's staying in there for a long time. I've got a creepy feeling that that's bad. So I like that the the story is going to kind of take this ominous tone here. So Magica, when she does find this wand, she's going to be like a kind of a kid in the candy shop, right? Tom, do you want to tell us about uh, what, what she goes about doing as she finds the wand?
1: Well, she is determining that the magic words on it are, there are some magic words carved in mystic symbols. She's eager to see what they mean and if what she wants to happen will happen. So she turns her raven into a rat.
0: Which is kind of unusual.
2: He's he's called rat face at some point in these comics, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. And also right in that section, another coincidence. But being a sorceress, I know these symbols. Yeah. What if she didn't know these symbols? The story wouldn't happen. So it's another True. coincidence, but it moves the story along, and that's fine.
0: It is very convenient, but appropriately so. Um, so at this point, you know, she's got her second win. She's got some new ammunition. As the ducks are about to cast off their boat, she comes after them, saying that nobody's going anywhere you're all staying here like Ulysses did 30 centuries ago. And you wily brats are going to get the treatment that Ulysses crewmen got. And she turns them into pigs. So gentlemen, this is kind of a moment here, right? This is like some, this is magic. Um, yeah, this
2: is real magic.
0: Yeah. Th- this is not something that you can really explain away as being, oh, it's a foof bomb. Oh, she's researched this, Um, whatever. You know, this, 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 this is an outright magic wand. Uh, I mean, it's on the one hand, I like it a lot. This is a really interesting plot device, and I love to see it. On the other hand, it does feel a little bit discordant compared to some of the other Magicka stories where, um, you know, maybe she's not as magic, but, but, you know, Barks never really cared about consistency so i guess why should we right true um and then as we transition to the next page and the nephews are like really horrified i i felt i this this is kind of a disturbing sequence right do you guys think so
2: well at this point magic is magic is becoming well not more powerful but she's actually getting the best of scrooge donald and the boys she's coming off ahead here she turns donald into a goat she's chased she chases scrooge up the mast and then she threatens to turn him into a pigeon right and all she wants is the old dime but scrooge says no so, so I'll
0: tell you that the the other thing that stuck stood out for me besides Magicka kind of posed seductively as Circe is just how sad um, the boys are throughout the rest of the story to be stuck as pigs. Um, it's it's a pretty it's it's kind of upsetting. Like I was I was six or seven when I read this and uh, just remember wow you know they look so sad it 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 felt a little bit um, it it was striking it was a striking moment for me. And and it's notable too that she disarms the nephews first, you know, the the only real threat, the only people who, who kind of saw through. Yeah. And and Bill, you, you called it, you know, she's basically systematically turning everyone into into animals here. Um, on the next page, you know, as Scrooge is crouching on the top of the mast, she turns him into a donkey and, and he falls from the mast. I really like his pose, kind of his donkey pose up there. Um, and she discovers to her initial horror that she can't transform him and get the dime because it's also transformed. So she has to kind of go back to the drawing board and think about how can she, you know, um, turn the situation further to her advantage. And, and it strikes her. She says, I have it. Your nephews, you'd like to see them restored, McDuck.
2: Oh. Well, she being, she's beginning to see the limits of her new powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you made a good point about, you know, the, the boys are usually the ones who are the most on top of what's going on and understands things quicker than everybody else. Here, they've pretty much been taken out of, uh, not out of the story, but they're not really a threat to her when they're just pigs. In fact, do they even talk as pigs? They
0: do talk a and, little
2: bit, right? Th- order pigs they actually do talk rest yeah. of the time they're just kind of standing around looking at things yeah it's, at it's funny they do don't
0: it. they don't lose the power of speechness I, I really like the character art when she begrudgingly turns Scrooge back on this page i think that's a fun moment
2: mm-hmm.
0: but but on the next page you know she's got him over the barrel and i this part amuses me right Scrooge is like very begrudging about you know giving in to her ransom he's trying to assemble Potentially talk them into preferring to stay as animals. Pointing out that the nephews don't have to worry about table manners and and dirty necks, but I think it's genuinely sad and affecting how they're crying and squealing as as little you know stuck stuck as little piggies there.
2: Yeah, and notice here they're they're making animal sounds, not people sounds. <clears throat>
1: That's a good touch.
2: Yeah. You know the 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 three boys are saying squee, um, and Donald is saying bah. Um, yeah. And Scrooge is trying to come up with ways to, well, can't you guys just stay this way? And, and 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 that way I get to keep my dime. And we finally um we finally find out a little bit about it, the indestructible chain. Right. In that in that there is a um a trick link in the chain. It doesn't really say why it's indestructible. He just says, Well, I made it put a trick link in it so I can open it up. Yeah,
0: that's interesting, right? Because that's not the point of the story, but you could imagine in another story, that's the kind of thing he would build the plotter. Around, like in the Unbreakable bin, for example. Mm-hmm. This is just a, a little aside. Um, right. So, you know, Scrooge is going to, this is in keeping with his character, right? That he he is initially very greedy about it, but, but then he resigns himself. Of course, I can't allow my nephews to stay like that. So, you know, she, quote, wins that round, and, and she runs back after he tosses the dime to her. She runs back up, shrieking about how the old number one dime is mine um so this is a real turn for magicka right she like she's she's already she's already villainous right but but here she is going to break the bargain that she's just made with him she has the dime she doesn't need him for anything else so she Uh, says that she will allow his, she'll let his nephews stay as they are. And in fact, she's going to transform Scrooge into a church mouse, the symbol of poverty. Um, and the only thing that stops her is that she tr- had transformed Donald into an animal that actually has a pretty good like can can actually fight back pretty well as a goat, you know, so
1: he rams into her before
0: Tom, do you want to read us the last two panels on that page? I like those a lot. Uh,
1: uh, uh, you but in ski. I'll turn you into something that's not so fast afoot. A turtle
0: or oh, no. So I. I really like this part of the story, you guys. And if I had, I mean, there's a couple of criticisms that I could levy against this one because it's, I think it's at best probably a, a good to average bark story. Um, but I love these animal transformations. And in, a, in an earlier era, in a 24-page or even like a 32-page story, we would have had a lot more. Uh, of these transformations, I think, and he would have maybe explored the possibility of this a little bit more extensively. So, you know, Magicka, has lost track of Scrooge in all that, but but at least you know Donald is harmless now, and she can busy herself with the preparations to melt the coin into her amulet. Um, and Scrooge is just hiding in one of those fake amphorae and despairing about you know how this this is kind of touching, right? You guys, Bill, do you wanna do you wanna read Scrooge's lines on that page there? I thought they were kind of affecting.
2: Well, Scrooge is hiding and he's saying this is the end of the line for my fortune with my old number one dime gone i no longer care what happens to my other trillions of dimes nor will i care what becomes of me my nephews are lost all that i valued in the world is lost i i i do know that scrooge at a certain point, puts all of his hopes. He figures his old number one is why he is rich. He kind of discounts all the other adventures he's had, and he figures everything is just based on old number one. And old number one is gr- is a great idea, but I don't I no longer care what becomes of my other trillions of dimes or my three cubic acres of cash in my money bin. Um, he's so he's just so he's just so sucked into the myth of even he sucked into the myth of old number one. Yeah, basically saying it's such a, a deep psychic blow to him. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, it might be a little bit underwritten there but but at least it's it's a better explanation than you know the 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 old lucky dime saw right it's not actually literally lucky i do like this next sequence a lot right the the nephews in pig form they're still being their, their resourceful selves. You know, they're spying on her very quietly. Um, and they've noted that the the wand, it's just laying on the floor next to her. But unfortunately, their hooves would clatter too much on the stone floor. So they can't walk over. They can't sneak over to get it. So we see Donald poke his turtle head into frame and say, maybe I can. Um, and I, I love this, you guys. I think as much as I love the actual animal transformations himself. I think this is my favorite part of this story. Just the notion of Donald quietly, but very, very slowly creeping in his turtle form over there. He's kind of like gritting his teeth. You know, you can imagine this playing out over the course of several minutes with the the pig nephews just nervously watching on. This really cracks me up.
2: Again, you know, you don't see, well, this is another case of Donald. Donald can be the hero too he he realizes he's he's too slow but he's gonna do it anyway yeah
0: yeah i, I like that
2: right he's this is very
0: risky but he essentially has no choice but to, to put his neck very slowly very to gradually put his neck out there so you know we 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 see the sorceress stoking her uh her fire and just exulting and and t- she's speaking in rhyme at this point which is very funny to me she says abracadabra and a fi-fifo fum. When the old dime melts, my time will come. I'll live in a palace with jewels and mink and handmaids and butlers. Fi-fifo fink. Um, that, that's neat. That's a neat bit of writing and showing how a little bit unhinged she is, which I think people is something that entertains people about Magicka. Um, and, and I love the panel of the nephews just sweating profusely, watching Donald creep over. But eventually, of course, she does turn with a screech saying come back with that wand you pest I'll turn you into an egg um, and the nephews, you know, they're able to knock her down. At least they can do that now that they don't have to worry about being quiet.
2: Well, here we got the boys now being the heroes again. Yeah. It's, it's a team effort. Yeah. every Everyone kind of gets their moment
0: in the sun here, right? Because on the next page, Scrooge sees his opportunity. He's going to emerge from his hiding place, um, grab the wand. You know, you had pointed out, Bill, that it, it was important. Magica called out that she, as a sorceress, can read the magic words and he is not so when he tries to do an incantation to her and turn her into a cat nothing happens um so he resorts to some good old uh, violence some good old destruction and he just breaks the wand into splinters um which which works very well it's it's fortunate that it did right because what if it just left the nephews (laughs) trapped in animal form but fortunately it doesn't it it turns them back
2: and then we'd have a longer story
0: yes yeah we would it's it's easy you know 19 pages is not the shortest for barks in the early 60s right it's a far cry from the day when he was able to do 24 26 and 32 pagers but it's easy to imagine this as a longer story Um, i like
1: he can pack so much into a into this story with very little in the way of uh, like space. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you know I'm I'm realizing now that we we literally only have the um the six characters in this, right? There's no no other incidental characters. It is just the five ducks and and Magica in this one, right? So it's kind, right. Of, kind of an intimate story here. Um and and these many of the Magica so we're 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 closing out the story here. We're on to the last page. Most of the Magica stories conclude with her in a sputtering rage. And this one is certainly no exception. She is wildly throwing foof bombs um, until Donald tosses one of those vases over her. The nephew saves Scrooge's dime before it melts. Not not the first time, not the last. And uh, they are chased from the cave with her throwing the treasure of Circe, um, literally saying (laughs) But yowl, just like onomatopoeia for her in a rage, which I always find very entertaining. It's a little bit retrograde, um, but it's a very funny characterization that he does with her. And, you
2: know, you, you kind of also have to read some of this in the year it was written. Yeah, when this book came out, I I I I didn't don't remember reading it at the time. But I would have been 12 years old. At 12 years old, I would have accepted a lot of things I wouldn't now. And the her sputtering, I would have just taken it exactly as what it means. She's she's swearing and she's really pissed off. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it's very entertaining. I totally accept that Bark's was um you know a product of his time and that's that's certainly fine i just it, part of doing this series is kind of reflecting on the way culture has shifted i find it interesting so the the one little you know ending. The little kicker at the end is that Scrooge is despairing that he must go home without the treasure of Ulysses. Um, but uh, the nephew points out, you're not doing too badly, though, Uncle Scrooge. It isn't every day you can get beamed with the personal jewels of the goddess Athena, even though they are marked made in Hong Kong. It's it's a pretty conventional, it's not even a punchline, but there really is something to the, the, the rhythm that Barks imbues it over the course of those three panels that is is just so much more appealing than your average comic book writer um that it just works really well as a nice little capper to conclude that's to conclude the story
2: and and barks set up the ending by pointing out earlier in the story that the jewels were made in hong kong you don't expect that fact to come into action anymore, but here it is in the last panel.
1: Right? Yeah, it's it's very cute. It's very clever. I just like that. I think Parks is just great at like maybe bringing things full circle. Uh, but. Uh... Like having them, like, as you were mentioning, Dad, about being bean with the jewels, I just like that, like you mentioned earlier, like with most Magicka stories, she's pissed off at the end. Yeah,
0: it's a signature enough character beat that even uh, other creators, if if they're going to bring anything with the Magicka character, this is going to be one of the things that they do, right? She's always got this same scheme and most of her stories end this way. Um, so gentlemen, what are your kind of overall thoughts on this story? I, I think I kind of tipped my hand by saying I think it's a it's a pretty average Barks adventure that has some some very fun moments for me. Um, I know you had picked this one. Is this like a favorite of yours or just like a nostalgic favorite even?
1: I would say it's like a nostalgic favorite. I like the rhythm of it. It just reads like it, it's ironic to me that now reading it, it's ironic to me that it's based on Greek mythology as a Greek story. I think Homer and Odyssey. But then I was reading up on that before this and I saw that those are written in type of like a a, a meter mm-hmm. in Greek. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's right. You know, d- now that I think about it, this would almost certainly have been my first exposure to the story of Ulysses, like literally reading this in this Karl Bark story. It's so neat that he introduces kids to so many of these ideas. Um, what about you, Bill? Any, any kind of overall thoughts on the story?
2: Well, this is one of the many um, Uncle Scrooge stories that get into ancient history. Here we've got Ulysses. Um, one of my favorites was always Prizes of Bizarro, which mm. gets into you know that kind of stuff. There was <clears throat> Finding the Golden Fleece. Um, there, in general, the Uncle Scrooge stories have a lot of ancient history buried in them. And to me, a lot of the Uncle Scrooge stories, they feel a lot like Indiana Jones, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's Indiana is, is you know, looking at the looking for the Holy Grail or something else. And there's funny stuff in Indiana Jones, too. And um, the Prize of Pizarro, there's a definite link between that story in uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I, even Lucas and Spielberg said they got part of the plot from uh, Prize of Pizarro um but Barks used a lot of history and i really like that um and this is this is another one of them king solomon's mine i think there was a story with king solomon's mind Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know
0: and, and i i apologize i totally forgot when new guests come on i i'd like to invite them to mention one or two of their favorite stories by barks you know you mentioned prize of pizarro any others that you want to call out as as a big favorite of yours
2: um well at a certain point in time in the early 60s My dad was getting coverless comics from the local drugstore, and these were comics that didn't sell in the stands, so they'd rip the cover off and then send the cover back to get refunded for the comic. But the store would give a box of books and comics to somebody local. And for for a number of years, it was my dad. He'd come home with his box of paperback books and comics. And both Prize of Pizarro and Island in the Sky, I got coverless versions of it. And you no, know, I would have been 13 or younger, 12, 13, 10. I don't know. But I... The stories just always worked for me. Um, they were fun, but I was also, like I said, a preteen or early teen, and I like reading comic books. Um, the way Barks wrote and made the stories funny just always worked for me, and still does even now when I'm not when I'm no longer in my early teens.
0: Yeah, I, those are those are some fun ones. I would say a nice mix of kind of the futuristic and the classic adventure stories to, to get your first taste of um, that's awesome. So you know, I I do like this story. I don't. I know I I leveled some criticism at it. We we've got some of it is not even Barks' fault. Just I do find it jarring to see this weird format. Um, but you know, you can tell he's kind of winding down a little bit, uh, getting a little bit less detailed with his art. Um, there there are an awful lot of coincidences in this one. Even though I do agree, it is they're in in keeping with a, a, a the lineage of how how comics were, essentially. Um, But I do like the animal transformations a lot. I think this one's pretty fun. It sounds like we all enjoy it, um, but no one's really calling it out as like one of his all-time greats. But yeah, like
2: you said, it's a fun story. Um, It's it's got uncle scrooge and magica working in their normal modes you know she wants old number 1 and he wants to keep all his money but he wants more if he can possibly yeah. get it and the boys kind of are the um the beacons of reason yeah. they're they're saying you know when when scrooge and donald Get the whiff of the perfume. The boys are going. Wait a minute! Something's wrong here. We got to figure this out because it, it's not right. Yeah. And the boys always played that role.
0: Right. It's it's a nice bit of kid empowerment.
2: Um. So you know, at
0: this point, as before we wrap things up, I I like to check in on Index that site I mentioned because users will vote for the these stories. They'll rate them. It gives us a pretty good idea of how the overall community feels about them. Um. This one has a ranking of 7.63, which is... You know, good for let's see it, it's good for number two hundred and nine right now of all 43 some thousand Disney comics. So you know, as most Barks adventures are, it's rated much higher than the average Disney comic. Um, I have my own spreadsheet where I kind of broke them out and so that I could look at just the Barks adventures compared to each other. And if you look at it that way, this one falls kind of square in the middle of all of Barks' adventure stories. So it's It's like a pretty much dead in the average of his stories is how fans think of this. And that strikes me as pretty right.
2: could, Could you tell me where Back in the Klondike fits in that list? Yeah, I mean, it? you're
0: you're right to call that one out because that one <laughs> so, is the <laughs> I
2: was big
0: big number one of Barks' adventure stories of all Disney comics. Usually, it's in the number one slot. One one day when I was doing this, because I check it frequently, only one time did I see Tralala briefly overtake it for the number one spot, and then like pretty quickly fall back down to number okay. two, where you'll usually <laughs> encounter
2: it. Tralala yeah. is pretty. Damn- Damn good
0: yeah yeah it's it's a classic so um so you know this is a good one um gentlemen i really appreciate you uh revisiting the story with me before we wrap it up for uh completely do you guys want to call out a favorite panel of yours one that that kind of stood with you for
2: this story i i I kind of like that panel with where you first see magicka laying on the couch yeah. where she, uh, she's playing the daughter or, or niece or whoever it is um it's oh i shouldn't say strange but it, it's unique it's unique for a duck book you've got magica trying to look sexy in a duck way <laughs> and after so many panels with kind of minimalistic backgrounds this one's got a, a full background there yeah and it has it's that panel feels more real than some of the stuff in the earlier parts of the book
0: yeah i, I agree it's pretty striking it's a good choice what about you, Tom, any of them that are, um, you know, standing out to
1: you? I really like the uh the one where she breaks uh she accidentally um kicks a hole in the wall and she enters Sergei's uh like her old room. Mm-hmm. Then also um I think I really have to uh that panel and then the one with uh the nephews as pigs like uh tackling Magicka or, or trying to tackle her to keep him away from Donald as a turtle.
0: Yeah, that's a fun one. There's a good sense oh. of motion there. It's a really good one. <laughs> I think I think my pick might come from that same page, um, the one where the, the ducks as animals are all hoping that magic is not going to notice Turtle Donald, you know, gradually creeping. Um, if not that one, then the uh, on the last page, the, the very top panel where she's just foof bombing them with wild abandon, I think is a, is a great one as well. Excellent. I think I think we covered this quite nicely. Gentlemen, I really appreciate uh, you know two generations of you coming on to share your thoughts about this fun fun comic. Um, it, it's been it's been really awesome getting to hear your perspectives. So thank you very much. People can check out Bark's remarks on Facebook and sometimes on Instagram and keep an eye out for our next issue, which is going to cover, oh, it's going to cover the status seeker, another interesting early sixties adventure. So gentlemen, thank you once again. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Thanks.